Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I do love my theme music. Thank you very much at Toehider for making that for me. Follow him on Twitter at Toehider. He's an excellent musician coming out of Melbourne and uh, he wrote that for me because I said, I need theme music for my podcast that sounds like two guys playing guitar shoulder blade to shoulder blade as pyro goes off around them. He goes, I got your back. <laughs> and he made that for me. Uh, still yet to speak to him in person. He's my true Twitter friend. Um, follow him on Twitter at Toe hider. Anyway, hi, welcome. This is the Osher Ginsberg podcast. G'day, I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring. Hopefully, it'll leave you truly inspired as well. My goal in this show is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell or who have achieved something remarkable in their lives and through their story, hopefully get inspired myself, perhaps inspire you as well. My guest on this show today is... Uh, I guess one of the most, I guess you could call her quite easily, one of the most visible, most important voices in Australia, Mia Friedman. You can follow her on Twitter right now, at Mia, M-I-A, Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N, all one word. Also, you can check out her remarkable website, mamamia.com.au. There's three M's in Mamma Mia. You can figure out where they go. Uh so go check that out now. If you feel like it while you're on Twitter, the greatest thing you can do for me is to tweet out a link to the show, which is osherginsberg.com. That's it. Please, if it's for you, if it's for you, please share it if you choose. And uh, 
one of the things you can do that'll really help the show is to rate it and put a review in iTunes. That uh, really does great things for me on the iTunes charts every week. Thank you so much for the support for the Will Anderson episode last week. It was really fun. Welcome if you're new. Thanks for being here. Uh, Check out some of the earlier episodes. I'm sure you'll dig them. Let me know what you thought. I'm very proud of every episode I've put up. I think they all have a lot to offer, and I'm looking forward to bringing many, many more to you for as long as I can. I love making this show. It'll always be free, and um, I love the dialogue that it produces between you and I. I really do. You can find me on Twitter at Osher Ginsberg, O-S-H-E-R-G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G. If I blocked you, sorry, that was an accident. Um, Oopsie-daisy. There is a link on my profile on Twitter to help you get unblocked. Uh, So before we get to Mia, what's going on with me? Um, Look, as I mentioned in my other show, the other podcast that I do with Natalia... It's called Let Me Tell You Something. You can find us on iTunes. As I told the story in great detail on that show, I'm back on Tinder. <laughs> Only for a few more days, then I go back to Australia and then I'm not on it anymore. But uh, that's okay. I guess the thing that is interesting this week is I've had to come to the real- realization, whether I like it or not, I have a type. I wish I didn't. I wish I could be equally attracted to all women. But I have a type. It seems... On further introspection, further reflection, that I am very attracted to energy, particularly women who are a force of nature. When I think about the women that I've had significant relationships with in my life, they were all, every one of them, just powerful prisms for the energy of the universe. And it wasn't until this week that I realized, this is wild, um, Because it wasn't until this week that I realized, before I lived in LA where there is no weather, uh, it wasn't until this week that I realized that when I was younger, I always enjoyed running out into a fierce storm to play in the weather. I loved it. I loved standing strong in the force of the wind and the rain. I absolutely love it. I know it's not the safest thing. certainly got me into a lot of trouble in the past. I've gotten injured doing it. Uh, But there's something about it. Man. Even when I go to the snow, I love it when it's a blizzard. I get upset when they close the lifts because of the wind. I love being in the middle of all that enormous energy. And I've come to realize that that is what, it's precisely what I'm attracted to in a woman. And I'm, I'm attracted to a woman that's just like a force of nature. Alas, that is not something you can see in a cover photo on Tinder, especially if you've got your sunglasses on. Well, it's kind of something you can see on Tinder. I mean, there's a twinkle in someone's eye that gives you a clue, but it's really not until you meet someone that you know for sure. And um, that's usually in the first two minutes of a date. At least I'm not going straight to dinners with people. I learned my lesson the hard way. I'm, I'm, I'm grabbing coffee with, with new people, far less of a commitment. In fact, I've, I've had to learn not to be so impulsive with commitment and to just be, let the child psyche inside my head just make its noise, let it do its thing. Eventually it goes quiet and I can be at peace, but those first 20 minutes or so, oh boy, there's a, there's a lot to be said for just noticing the feeling of your breath on the inside of your nostrils while you're pretending to listen to what a beautiful woman is saying to you over coffee. It's uh, <laughs> a lot to be said for that indeed. Wow. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at this week. Uh, let me tell you about my guest today. Mia Friedman's her name. She's very, very interesting woman. In my opinion... Uh, one of the most important voices in Australian media today. Now, I tell this to her face only a few minutes in. I don't always agree with what she says. But I like the fact that I'm challenged by what she says because I believe that healthy debate is very important, that it's an integral part of a progressive, kind, humanist society. And I, 
I truly believe that. So Mia and I, we have a great conversation. I'm really thrilled that you can listen to it. We talk about feminism. We talk about her worth, her work ethic, how she went from an unpaid work experience kid at 19 to the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine less than five years later. Um, it's very, very interesting. We talk about how she's been set upon by the great Australian outrage machine time after time and how she deals with it. We talk very honestly about anxiety. We even talk about what I'm doing with, uh, or what I did with the big clear bachelor of the year check and where that thing ended up. Now, she and I spoke last year. It's been a couple months since I recorded this. Uh, we spoke right before the Australian election. So you'll hear a few times Mia refer to our Prime Minister, who at the time was a woman, Julia Gillard. But other than that, everything's pretty much up to speed. Um, part of the deal with me interviewing Mia was that uh, she said you can only do it if my staff get a chance to interview you. So I arrived at their very cosy office. They've since moved, but at the time it was just packed to the rafters with just powerful, smart, fashionable, beautiful women, wall to wall. There was a few blokes in there, but mostly all women, powerful women at that. So after what I just told you, you can imagine what was going on in my mind when I walked in there. Uh, these women then proceeded to question me for a solid hour while I, I munched on vegan Thai food that they had gratefully got for me from up the street. It was a robust conversation. I was very honest with them as I was promised the cone of silence, which Mia and I get into, but I had a great time. It was really nice to connect with a room full of people that these people, like they, they kind of set the tone for a lot of the conversation that happens back in Australia on a daily basis. Mamma Mia is a very popular website. Uh, the the Mamma Mia office was great. Uh, it made me miss working in an open plan, creative environment that um, I experienced when I worked at cable TV, but I'm sure that's going to happen again. So uh, so let's do this. I uh, apologize in advance. There's some tea slipping. Ah, as, Will Anderson, as Will Anderson would say, it's free. <laughs> If you've ever wanted to know what it's like being Mia Friedman, come enjoy a cup of tea in a small conference room just off to the side on the right of her office overlooking Darling Harbour in Sydney on a sunny August afternoon. Hi. Hi. This is pretty snazzy digs you've got here. Well, we are, yeah, you, well, take a good look around because we're not going to be here for much longer. You've we're outgrown it? Yeah, we have outgrown it. We have. MamaMia.com.au is moving where? We are um, looking at a couple of different offices in Surrey Hills at the moment. We need a big open plan space. Yeah. Because, you know, it's funny because we moved in here just with my husband and I and they were, we were at different ends of the office and we didn't even have phones connected. Um, and now we've sort of grown out of it. Oh, right. When you, when you started, you were able to shout across the room, hey, have you seen that? I used to have sleeps on the floor <laughs> in the day. Yeah, I look, when, when, when I started, I started at home and, yeah, and right. I did that for three years. And then it got to the point where it was awesome living, working from home until it was not awesome anymore. Yeah. And then um, I had to get out. Fair enough. Yes. Well, we'll talk about all that. I'm just, I'm really grateful that we can do this today. We've been trying to do this for a while. We have. You've been very kind. Um, I'm just really grateful that, that we can do this. You're a, a very important woman in our country. <laughs> no, you are. You are. You're very. Thank you. Your voice is an important voice. And I want to get into all that. I want to get into your voice and I want to get into the reaction to your okay. voice and. and I should say it this out. If you want, I will more than happily send you an edit before I publish this. Anything don't worry you, about it. Anything you don't feel happy about. Okay. 
if there's, you know, if we get into something, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that person's name, or I should probably. No, no, that. that's a good point. I'll okay. be more than happy that's to. That's good. Thank you. Don't worry, it's my Thank pleasure. You. I'm not interested in getting anyone into anybody into trouble. So back at you. You <laughs> are. Um, I was a bit scared in there. I won't lie, uh, but I was like, "Well, fuck it." I'm, I'm can't imagine why you'd be scared sitting there with twenty women, desperate to get into your brain, among other things. Well, no, I. Um, mm. No, so I've just done a. Um, I just did a, what was it, a little Charter House, Char- Chatham? Chatham House Rules. Chatham House Rules chat here yeah. at Mamma Mia. So you'll never know what I talk to them about. Never. You'll never know it, but we just had a, a rather robust hour-long conversation. Yes. And uh, it was very Chatham honest. Chatham House Rules means that nothing leaves the room, which is very interesting in the age of social media. You have to spell that out. There was someone taking photos of me. and Yeah, no, that's different. I don't know but no information leaves the room. Mm. Nothing that was said is repeated. It's certainly not online, but even in person it's yeah. not repeated. Yeah. Sounds like another club I go to. <laughs> <laughs> so Mia, um, oh. Mia Friedman is here. And I want to know at what point, and I asked this of Yumi, and she gave me a really interesting answer, mm. and so I'm going to ask this of you. At what point did you know you were different from other girls? <laughs> um, it's such a great question. God, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think that um, so much of my, I think everybody feels that, that they're different and that they're a freak in some ways. And I think that so much of my interest in women's media was looking for reassurance that I wasn't different, looking for reassurance that I was normal, whether it was, um, you know, insecurities I might have or or just things that I didn't understand about myself. Um, Yeah, I think so much of what women do and the way that we're programmed to connect is to look for that reassurance from other people that we're not freaks. But how how young were you when you were like, because you're a woman that speaks up. How how Um, young were you when you were like, Oh, I speak up more than others. Oh, well, I was called precocious a lot when I was a child. And, of course, I was called a show-off. And all those things that – and I was called bossy. And all of those words that we use about little girls that are quite pejorative that we don't use about little boys. You know, boys aren't called bossy. They're called leaders. Um, And this idea of being precocious, I always understood, even before I knew what it meant, I always understood that it wasn't – a compliment or that it was a very backhanded compliment. Um, and it was, you know, it was basically the idea of being a little smart ass, I guess. At what point did you realize that you were treated differently than boys? Oh, um, well, I had an older brother, but he was seven years older than me. So I knew that I was treated differently to him, but because we were so, um, separate in age, it was hard to say what because, what was because he was a boy and what was because, you know, I was five and he was 12. Yeah. Um, and my parents always say that, that I used to demand and, and be outraged when I couldn't do all the same things that he could do and have all the same rules that he had. Um, so I was always very, very competitive with him, with everyone. Right. <laughs> From well, an early age. Oh, look, that's okay. It's, you know... I don't think, and I'm sure, you know, as a mother, you'd see that the, the qualities you have when you're five are the qualities, you, you know. I think so. Yeah, that that's very true. you have 35. That's very true. Um, in terms of being boys and girls, you know, my mum was a feminist. She was a working, um, she was a working mum before that was very common. Um, 
so, uh, you know, in terms of, of she was very much been my feminist role model in just the way she's lived her life. Um, and she always never occurred to me that, that men and women should be treated differently, you know. And my father was very, very much a believer in me and um, never gave me any reason to believe that I couldn't do anything if I wanted to. Did you notice that your dad was different from other friends of yours, other female friends um, of yours' dads? I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I w- it's funny that, that m- my dad worked a lot when I was growing up, but I've got really, really strong memories of him. And it, it's funny because now I see that in my own children when I talk to them, that often your most vivid memories of a parent is of it, – it's not the stuff that happened every day from your childhood. It's the stuff that might have happened once or a couple of times that really stands out. So even though my poor mum did the hard yards – my most vivid memories of my childhood are doing stuff with my dad, like driving to school on the back of his motorbike or, um, you know, we, we would do the supermarket shopping together every Saturday and that would be our thing. Um, or he would pick me up from ballet and he would have the goon show playing in the car and we would go to Mitre 10 and he would do, you know, the hardware store shopping. And my memories of my mum during my childhood are much, much more blurry because she was there a lot more, yeah. I realise now. How good was the Goon Show on Saturdays with Dad yeah, in the, the car? Yeah, the Goon Show was great and we'd come home and we'd heat, heat up a quiche Lorraine or a quiche Florentine. It was, it was the, uh, the was 70s or the 80s, yeah. I remember sitting there in the car with my – the Goon Show was uh, Spike Milligan yeah. and um, – Peter Sellers Peter and Sellers. Trying, to re- trying to understand that humour as a kid. In some ways it was easy because it was very childlike humour. And it was radio plays. Yeah, it was radio All plays. All Theatre of the Mind stuff was on the ABC. Exactly. It was about noon, Noon think, on, on a Saturday. Saturday. That's exactly when and I remember Dad would be like, we can't get out of the car yet. We, we would have the same thing. We would do exactly that. We have, to, we have to listen to the end of this. Yeah. And it was the same joke. It was, they don't it was replay the, the shows yeah. over and over again. But so much. I've been trying to find it, actually. I've been trying to find Goon Show. I can't seem there to. There aren't podcasts or anything? Uh, I'm looking for it. Yeah. It was such brilliant comedy and in many ways kind of shaped my, uh, I don't know, sense of timing. Certainly yes. Milligan and Sellers. That and uh, MASH were kind of like the pop culture wallpaper of mm. my childhood because we yeah. used to watch MASH constantly. Now, I want to talk to you about this, and yeah. as we go along, I'm one of four boys. Mm. I went to an all boys school. Didn't know that? Yep. I'm one of four boys. I went to an all boys school, and until I moved in with my girlfriend at 21, <laughs> you all never... I knew was men. Right. So you had a mum, though. Yeah, I had a mother of four boys who worked for the Australian Army, ex-refugee. Right. She was pretty much she's pretty business. So my <laughs> idea, I remember my first girlfriend had to actually go. I don't know. It's like she actually teach, had to teach me about women. I did, right. had no idea. Just just from and this as well. I had no idea about feminism. I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, right. And it wasn't through being angry about it or being mean about it. It was just, just not just, exposed to it. I just didn't know it. Yeah, I just didn't know. So I do want to talk to that about that. Um, but so going to an all boys school was pretty mm. weird for me around that. Mm. Because it wasn't really spoken about much mm. about the role of women in society. It was all like your men, your future leaders. So what kind of what kind of school did you go to? Was that sl- switch flipped? I just with went you? to the local public school. Yeah. So um, there was absolutely nothing interesting or spectacular about my education, except when I got to year five, where it was. Um, it was the very early 80s and it was um, – I, I got into what was called opportunity class or OC. So the, all the kids in the area, all the public school kids did this test and they offered 60 places 
to um, kids that that showed a particular aptitude. Mm. And so I was in this, I had this, for fifth and sixth class, I went to a different school, which was Olara, which was um, the the local OC. Yeah, the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And that was pulled all the essence of the suburbs of Sydney kids and they went to this one school. And there were some amazing people in my class, like Emil Sherman, who's my cousin, who's gone and won an Oscar for the King's Speech, produced that. Justin Clark was in OC with me. Um, you know, Rick are you, Lusky. Saying the New, are you saying the New South Wales public health, the public education system has, has done well? It will. It, it was a really interesting time. That's you fantastic. know, Rick Lusky, who's the um, uh, head of comedy at the ABC now, you know, it, but what was interesting about it is that they took us and they gave us, they went, okay, so these kids have got a certain, um, you know, academic skill level. So we can therefore not spend so much time teaching them the basics of maths and English and spelling and all that. We can freestyle it a little bit. So we did a lot of writing poetry and we did a lot of looking at architecture and um, we had no desks in our classroom. So we just spent a lot of time on the floor and it was really 80s and we had these fabulous kind of lesbian feminist teachers and it was this real an incredible gift for those two years, you know. Um, so that was, I look back now and, and see that as, as incredibly fortunate time and probably the most, most um, interesting thing about, about my education. Well, in that you are, your eyes were open to a, yeah, a possibility, I guess. Absolutely. And just, it was, it was almost a creative hothouse yeah. and very different now to um, OC and selective high schools where it is all about coaching and, 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 you know, the demographic is very much split towards those kids whose families believe in coaching and tutoring and hot housing. This was the opposite. It was really hippie freestyle stuff. Yeah. And it was, it was great. You know, my, my, it meant that I, I went into high school without some of the grounding that I possibly needed, but they were an amazing two years that, that we had. What did you learn about, um, questioning? Mm. Status quo. Exactly. Yeah. It was very much about, about questioning and about looking outwards into the world. And it's funny having kids at that age, you know, now I've got a 16-year-old, a 7-year-old and a 5-year-old and experiencing the school system as a parent and seeing what it looks like from the outside now. And, and the shit that they learn is so much more difficult and more complicated than what we learn. And they learn it at such, you know, a young age. But I'm always wanting my kids to be looking out at the world, not looking in. That's my thing. Well, we'll, um, we'll talk about your kids a little later, mm. but we still have to talk about you. Uh, at 19, you got to work at uh, Cosmopolitan Magazine. Clio at 19. Clio Magazine, yeah. sorry. You got to work at Clio Magazine as a, a, a work experience. I did, things, yeah, yeah. What you call intern now. I started as a work experience, so yeah. I went in for two weeks doing work experience. For free. And for free. Yeah, I know. These days you would expect to be paid. And then I turned that into an internship by saying to Lisa Wilkinson, can I please keep coming in one day a week? And she agreed. Yeah. And then I started coming in extra days. So by the, you know, after a few months, I was coming in three or four days a week, uninvited, but just hoping that, Unpaid. you know. Oh, yeah. God, yes. I was working three jobs. Um, because I recognized that um, I didn't have a lot to offer them. But they had a lot to offer me in terms of the experience that I could get and the exposure. I mean, I was just grateful to be breathing the same air as Lisa Wilkinson and some of the other women, you know, Deborah Thomas and some of the other women that I worked with. Um, that was an absolute gift to me. And I, I recognised that there were a lot of girls who would have crawled over hot coals to be in that position. So, 
you know, in those naive days before I understood about head counts and on costs and all of those kinds of things, I thought it was as simple as just making yourself indispensable and then you'd get a job. And that was my goal. Mm. Um, of course, it's not that simple. Um, but still, eventually I did. I, because I was around, eventually I did get an entry level so how position. Did you, but how did you make yourself needed? I mean, I there's people whose jobs yeah. it was to be there and yeah. here's this girl turning up for free for sure. saying, hi, I'd be prepared to do your job tomorrow for less money. Well, not well, their not exactly job, that, but, but I was trying to create like a Mia-shaped hole, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was just, I'll do that. I'll get that. I'll write that. I'll file that. I'll Did you have a desk? Did they the invite you into meetings? How did it work? Um, not so much meetings at first. I had a little, a little place to sit sometimes. Um, but I just did try to do whatever I could. I wanted to be noticed and I wanted to be useful and I wanted to try to, yeah, I wanted people to notice me for being helpful. It's quite, and I've had a, some experience with 54 Park Street. Mm. It's, and my first, I guess my, my first take on it was like, what is any man complaining that there are no smart hot <laughs> Funny, together, educated, super fashionable women in Sydney. Just stand outside that building yeah, at lunch hour. Yeah, go in that lift and you'll meet 100 of Oh, my God. But I remember being in there, just the power of the women in that building was something, like I told you, that I'd never been exposed to. Only to a point. Only to a point in management where it became men. Ah. Um, so but women rose far, but not all the way. And so what was that like? Going from, I guess, you know, from high school and the, the three jobs you were working to suddenly be in this environment. Well, I loved it. I'd come from a girls' school so I, and I, I love women. So I loved working with women. Like I found that the most easy, natural thing in the world. Um, you know, I, I realise it's probably not the most normal thing in the world, but I, I knew no different. And because I'd come from a girls' school, it wasn't that un- remarkable to me. Uh, you know, but... It, to me, just being having the privilege of, and my God, Park Street. I mean, it looks a bit flash now, but it was just a shithole. It was, you know, the floor had had holes in the carpet that was held down with masking tape. There was I shit remember. falling out of the ceiling. Like, it was a dive. I remember the first time I went to Dolly in '99 for oh, a Channel V thing, and the, yeah. the the ceiling was falling, literally in. falling in. Like, but it's still, it's like this incredible yeah. building in Sydney that. It's at the, right across the street from the park and it's this hub of, I don't know how many masters yeah. are in there, how many magazines are oh, in there. Oh, probably, be. you know, 20 or 30 now Easily. at least. And, but every, you know, there's the glossy, like magazines themselves, there's the glossy exterior, but they're shoehorned in there and it's, um, you know, but that didn't, none of that worried me and it never worried me. The whole time yeah. I was there, none of that worried me. I didn't care where I worked. That wasn't why I was but there. You, but you, all that free work that you'd been doing yeah. and you said three part-time jobs or the other jobs yeah, yeah. you were doing to get... I was waitressing. I was um, doing promotional work. I was a promotional girl, like handing out things at motor shows and home shows and in nightclubs wearing Bacardi rum t-shirts and handing out samples. And I was also um, working at a gallery that had this postcard distribution business, this photographic gallery. And so, yeah, and I was living at home, so I didn't have a lot of expenses. Um, but it wouldn't have occurred. I like, I couldn't believe that I was that I was it when I got offered a, a job. I couldn't believe that I was being paid to do it because it was so much fun, right? And I enjoyed it so much. And I'm imagining once you got in mm. at, at an actual position, yeah, that you ascended fairly rapidly. 
Um, yeah, I, I had lofty goals. I wanted to be the editor of Cleo by the time I turned 25, which at 19 sounds positively elderly. But um, I, it, it became clear when I, I sort of ascend, ascended quite rapidly under Lisa. But when Lisa left, I got to work under a couple of other editors, which were really interesting. But I, I got very publicly passed over for promotion when I got to about the number three position and it became very clear and then Lisa left. It became very clear that I wasn't going to make my dreams come true and I wasn't going to become the editor. And so at 24 I left um, with the view – I was really disillusioned. I was really disillusioned and, and um, I probably had a bit of a, you know, Gen Y tantrum um, not that I am Gen Y but I was that age where you do think the world – you know, I think the younger you are the more you think you know and I kind of thought that I was owed this job and um, I, I ended up getting almost the identical job but at Cosmo just before I turned 25. So it was one of those, you know, Disney endings. But it was good. I don't think I would have been a very good editor of Cleo because I loved it too much whereas I didn't have any feelings about Cosmo. I didn't really think it was a very interesting magazine so I could come to it much more dispassionately whereas Cleo because I'd worshipped it, I identified with it, I loved Lisa, I'd worked there for so long. I wouldn't have made a good editor of Cleo. So, hang on, you said you left. Did you like leave yeah, the left. building? Yeah, I left the building. I left the building and I started freelancing and I made plans to move to New York. And I was going to oh. freelance over in New York and I was going to live there. What was the call? Do you remember the call about Cosmo? Um, I went into Cosmo actually to talk about freelance work, which was a big deal in itself because Cosmo and Cleo were such fierce competitors. And um, it was in the same building, but um, I went in and, and the editor was looking to replace herself and, and move on up. And she said, you know, I'm looking for an editor, don't you? And I said, well, no, I'm not interested. I know. What was I thinking? Because I was just, I was sort of thrown because it's like, no, I'd wanted to be the editor of Cleo. And I was so myopic with this vision that, duh, it's the same job. Uh-huh. Like, anyway, and, and I also like quite loved the idea of going overseas. But, but I, I sort of met the man who's now my husband just before then. So, you know, I ended up having good reason to stay. Yeah. And was just so lucky that, that the job was still waiting for me when I pulled myself together and realised what a gift I was being given. And she was taking a massive risk. I mean, my God, I was 24. I thought I knew everything, of course, but I didn't. Um, I didn't at all. And, and I was just really, really lucky. How do you see the work ethic that you had then mm. and the people that you worked with, the mm. work ethic that they had underneath you, how do you see that in comparison to, for example, work ethic mm. now? I mm, know. It's really hard not to Gen Y bash. And I won't because I work with, you know, almost everyone I work with is Gen Y. Um, it's a mix, you know. It, it, it comes down to individuals and, and you don't want to generalise. But I know that there's much more of a sense of entitlement, um, this whole idea that interns should be paid. Um and not un- appreciating that actually, and we run an imp- intern program at Mamma Mia, it takes a lot of work. And frankly, if we took our intern program away tomorrow, we'd be fine. But there'd be a lot of journo students who would miss out on some incredible exposure and some incredible opportunities. So um, we certainly don't use it to prop up our business. But I don't know, I think that that not everybody's time is worth the same amount. And I think that that's just true. That's just a truth. It's okay to say. It's yeah. Uh, it's okay to say. Exactly. Well, I interviewed Natasha Belling. Oh yeah. And uh, who's a newsreader on? on uh, uh, she now works on the Breakfast Show on Channel Ten here in Australia, and um, she's. I think got two kids. She got two yeah, kids. Two young kids. 
And she said that someone came up to her and goes, oh, I've got five weekends in a row. And Tash was like, I've been doing this 16 years and I still get five weekends in a row. Yeah. What are, you, what are you here for? <laughs> yeah, the job. I know, I know. <laughs> and I would notice when I became an editor that, that people would, you know, people would come in and they'd sort of go, look, I just feel like my career's just hit a glass ceiling and I just, I, I really just want to know where I'm going. And it's like, well, didn't I just promote you two weeks ago? And it's like, yes, but I just still feel that I just need more money or I need a car spot or I need to work four days instead of five, but I want a car spot as well. And, you know... I, I don't, you don't want to kind of say back in the olden days we worked much harder. I, I think people who work in magazines work really, really hard because magazines yeah. are not well paid and um, – well, editorial, it's not well paid and um, it's not hugely well staffed. Um, so magazines, for example, run on interns and work experience students and we used to always laugh that, that, that editors are very, very, very good at hiding heads in their team. So, you know, finance would come down and want to know exactly how many people are on the staff. And technically there might be 20 people on the staff, but in actual fact, it takes 30 people to run that magazine. It's just 10 of them are hidden in various ways and in various places by editors who know there's no other way they can get their product out. Speaking of car spaces, thanks for yours today. You're welcome. <laughs> it's pretty snazzy. One of your, uh, one of your, one of your co-workers uh, met me outside and drove me down. She goes, Mia's right next to the front door. I'm like, yeah, it's her You're show. You're a rock star. <laughs> How's that? No, that just happened to be with a car space for this office, which was very lucky. I'm not, I'm not sad about that. It's her. Now, uh, I do want to get into, I uh, definitely want to get into what's happening here at mamamia.com.au or mm, both? A-U. A-U. Why did you leave magazines? Um, a couple of reasons. I um, I was done, mostly. The, the biggest reason is that I was done. I'd, I'd edited Cosmo for seven years. I'd worked at Clio for five. Um, and then I'd been editor-in-chief for um, of both of them and Dolly for about another two or three after that. So I'd essentially done 15 years working on the same in the same space, mm. in that young women's lifestyle space. And none of that time, oh, that's not true. When I was at Clio, I probably would have been in that space. But it, by the time I was editing Cosmo, I was pregnant. I had a mortgage. I wasn't interested in 101 sex positions and, you know, ways to do my makeup on a Saturday night. So I really wanted to um, write and work in my life stage, if mm. that makes sense. And I didn't see that in magazines, you know. I wasn't interested. Um, there wasn't a mag- another magazine at ACP that I wanted to edit. But moreover, I felt that um, magazines weren't the future. I felt that the future was online. And I knew that as a – because I've always wanted to work in um, the the part of the media that I'm most absorbed in as a consumer because the best – the most important thing I've ever been taught by Lucy Wilkinson was that don't ever make the mistake of looking outwards from your product. You've always got to look back into it from your reader's point of view and through your reader's eyes. And – in the headspace of a reader, I wasn't looking to magazines that came out once a month or even once a week anymore. I was looking for a more of a two-way conversation that was happening online and I was also looking for something more authentic. I was tired of that sort of same Jennifer Aniston airbrushed, making women feel insecure kind of mode of communication that magazines have always, you know, used. So... And I was tired of being – I was also tired. I was only in my 30s and I was really tired of being a manager. 
you know, I felt like the higher, the better you get at something often, the further you get away, you know, you work your way up the ranks and the further you get away from what you actually love doing. And for me, it was writing and, and creating, you know, talking to an audience. And when I was editing and when I was editor in chief, you end up just doing a lot of teaching, you know, you're teaching editors and you're nurturing your writers and you're helping. And it's a little bit like being an artist and trying to paint, tell some, someone else how to paint a picture. I felt that my creative years were still very much ahead of me and, and, and um, you know, in my present. And I wanted to get my hands dirty. Yeah. Um, would have been nice to keep salary. But um, I was tired of the politics of management, you know. I had a disastrous stint at Channel 9 and that burnt me out even more and taught me that I was just exhausted by the politics of, of working in a big company and, and spending your time managing up and managing down and managing sideways and coming, you know, you, you end up getting through a day and you're absolutely exhausted and all you've done is put out fires because someone didn't CC someone else on an email and you've created nothing. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to jump in. I wanted to jump online. And frankly, um, I had no choice because I... I, ACP were willing to let me out of my contract to go to Channel 9. But then when that went to shit, um, I just had to get out. Like I didn't want to go backwards to magazines and I knew I couldn't stay there. So, and no one else offered me a job. So <laughs> I had to go online. So you were unemployed? Yeah, very much so. You know, With I thought. Two that, kids at the, at the time? Yeah, two kids. And my husband um, had just sold his business. So it was a real life shift for us. I mean, I was. Looking, we made the decision in January of 2007, six, seven, to um, both get out of what we were doing by mid-year. I wanted to get out of Channel 9. He wanted to have sold his business and, and we did that. But we had no idea what was going to come next. Um, I thought that by leaving um, Channel 9 in a sort of a blaze of humiliation and publicity as I did when a show that I'd been working on the catch-up was axed the same day that that I announced that I was leaving um I thought that at least the phone would ring because people would know that I was available but it never did it never rang and that was really tough because I thought it would and it was really uncomfortable really uncomfortable um because my identity like a lot of people who love what they do your identity gets caught up with what you do and it's really hard when you don't have that anymore, it's kind of like, well, who am I again? I'm not sure. I really felt that at the start of this year when I'm I was sure. when I was uh, after it was the first time in 20 years that I was without a, uh, a job. Yeah, and you become like, well, who? It's really uncomfortable, isn't it? It's really weird. It was. Re- I just oh. I didn't have kids. I don't have yeah. kids, and but it was still it was tough to just sit. But the sitting led let the pressure build and the yes. pressure built to the point where I was like, okay, how do I get out of this? I create my way out of this. Exactly. That's, that's what I do. Exactly. I, I'm going to create the next job that I do and that's what's exactly. going to happen. Exactly. I couldn't put it better. And I was really lucky because just at the peak of that, you know, and I was, I, I can say now that I look back and I can see that I was depressed. I had really bad anxiety after that time at Channel 9. I was lost. I had, I was just a mess. Um, and I'd started Mamma Mia and it was starting to get traction, but I still felt really uncomfortable. I didn't know, you know, I'd gone from having this identity of working for a big major media company. And I don't just mean the lurks and the perks. You know, obviously the salary was a major lifestyle adjustment, but not having the salary, not having any salary. But it was, whether it's relevance deprivation, I don't know. But the best thing that could have happened to me is that I got unexpectedly pregnant. And I think if I hadn't, I had to keep going forward because I got pregnant. 
if I hadn't, I probably would have gone, this is just too uncomfortable. I can't sit in this anymore. I'm just going to go and get another job in media. I'm just going to go and look for another job, you know, at Fairfax or News Limited or, or you know, at Pacific Magazines or something like that. Um, and I'll go back into, into media management. But I couldn't because I was knocked up. So I had to keep going forward. And that was just the best thing, the best thing ever, apart from the fact that my third child is absolutely divine, as are my other children. But, um, you know, in many ways he saved me because I couldn't go backwards. That gave you something to write about. Yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> and it was nice to have a different experience of being pregnant and having a baby, that I wasn't on maternity leave. This was just my life. Yeah. There is no maternity leave when you work for yourself. But I also didn't have to answer to anyone and that was nice. Yeah. Um, you're, a very, you're a very driven woman, clearly. Mm. You have a very important voice in my opinion. I am driven. Uh, you're a very important voice in this country. And to be fair... Yeah, I don't always agree with you. No, and nobody okay. does, especially but my that's husband. Okay. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I don't always agree with myself. But it's okay. I like very much the fact that you challenge what I feel comfortable about. Thank you. When you, and it's enough to make me go, well, why am I so agitated by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my belief can get shifted because I like being challenged like that, yeah, actually. Me too. I like feeling that uncomfortability, like, oh, hang on, why is that rattling me so much? Um, and even though I don't always agree with what you have mm. to say, I will absolutely powerfully defend. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes I think you right have to, say to you have to read something you disagree with to work out how you feel about something as well. Yeah. I think that can really help. Like sometimes I'll read someone who I know I'm going to disagree with, just because I know that that will help me shape my own view. Yeah, and. I also think it's important, certainly in this world of curated content, that we can choose who we follow on Twitter, we can choose where we get our news from. Yeah. If we wanted, we could live in a bubble where everything we ever read... The echo chamber. Everything we ever read is exactly what we already think. It's true. And it's a dangerous place to be. Mm. Um, But there's been a couple of punctuating points Mm. since you've you've gone solo. Uh, You have indeed. Since you've broken out from the band and you're on the solo (laughs) tour. There's no more wings. It's now just, you know, you're by yourself. Um, there's been a couple of punctuating points where yes. uh, the internet has pretty much exploded mm. with your name in the masthead, in the headlines. Yeah. And I was wondering, why do, you think, why do you think people react to you in the way that they react to you? Yeah, that's a really good question that I have no idea what the answer is. We used to, one of um, my news editor, fabulous journalist who's now the Australian called Rick Morton, um, he's called Squiggly Rick on Twitter if, if you want to find him. He's hilarious. But he once flagged the idea when he was here of having a leaderboard of groups that hate me. <laughs> Cyclists were on the top of that list for a long time. Um, anti-vaccinators, um, hipsters, just free birthers, people I've pissed off. Fat people. Yeah, that was an interesting one. And I think that, look, it's really interesting. Gainers. I, sorry, it was gainers. It was the people I, the that were uh, deliberately. Put a good memory, yeah. I, I divide, it into, I I divide these people into two, right? <laughs> yeah. So I divide these and, and I call them SMOs, social media outbreaks. And you never, ever can pick when a SMO is going to happen. Like sometimes I think I'll write something that's really quite controversial and it will just sink without a trace other times i'll write something or say something that is just so nothing and it will turn smo mm. uh, and it will become this thing there's the times that i write something that i back myself and then you just 
let it wash over you. And then there are the times when you feel like you've been misrepresented, which is different. So, um, yeah, look, they never failed to take me by surprise. The most recent one that I had, I think I got through it better than I've got through any of the others. Yeah. And there have been some bad ones. I mean, the cyclist one was absolutely the worst when I, um, just to recap, I'll, I'll tell the story oh, so you, you don't have to. Story, you were, on, God, the, you were on the morning show, like the equivalent yeah, of like the Today Show. Yeah. The Today Show is like Good Morning America or something. And yeah. it was the morning after an Australian man by the name of Cadell Evans had won the Tour de France. And mm. uh, if it's outside of your world, you don't really need you – you, if you don't stay up late and watching television, you may not know who won I, the Tour de France. I did not know. And uh, the host of the show was being – Possibly jingoistic. I don't know. He was, yes. The host of the show was being very, very, uh, very intensely, yes, Aussie, Australian, yeah. 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 And uh, he said, oh, but Cadell Evans has won the Tour de France. You're like, yeah. He's well, a hero. He's, he's like, a he's hero. A hero. So, and you said, well, there's so many other heroes that we could call heroes. And you've conceded that your timing might not have been the best. Oh, it was really bad. <laughs> um, yet it seemed that, and this is what, People ask me about Australia and I don't miss the, this part about Australia yeah. when I'm not in Australia. I don't miss the, oh, shit, we're allowed to be outraged. Come on, everyone, let's be outraged. I've noticed that. And it's just carte blanche to say whatever you want and as vicious and vile as you can be mm, because mm. she or he, they yeah. did something. I'm, al- I'm therefore allowed to be as angry as possible. Mm. There's the mob mentality as well who just are looking for the next thing to be outraged about so i'll notice that sometimes they'll come and they'll hover over me and they'll vomit all over me and then they'll just move on to the next thing to be outraged you know there are some people who probably live pretty unhappy powerless lives and that's their only form of self-expression is to kick the dog metaphorically but um you know that that was the worst in terms of death threats threats against my children threats against my family um yeah that was I felt very physically unsafe during that time. And looking back, I actually regret not bringing the police into it because um, those people shouldn't have been allowed to get away with making those kind of threats and vile, vicious, revolting um, threats. You know, it was was very, very threatening. And I felt very, very unsafe for a long time. And it took me a long time to get my confidence back after that. What, like worried to go to your car, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, what it, you know, without wanting to be kumbaya and say, this is the silver lining and I learned, it was such a gift. What it taught me was the power of internet bullying from a kid's point of view because I'm a grown-up. I've got a million platforms to say how I feel and fight back. Um, you know, I'm in a position of, of relative power, whereas – if I was a kid at school and I didn't know, the thing is that you don't know who these people are. So I went on that day when the threats were coming through, I went across the road to get a sandwich and I'd look at people and I'd think, were you the per- you know, were you James 841 who said, you know, that he was coming to, you know, rape me into next week? And um, I mean, it was, I can't even begin to tell you what the threats were like. And you look around and you don't know, and that's where you've, you do let you do have that absolute fear because you don't you, you're boxing at shadows. Yeah. Um, the other times it's happened, like I've I've had a few occasions where I've just gone. The world's gone mad. Like when I was on Q and A, um, and I made the comment that little girls don't tend to want to grow up to be sex workers. And this was in the presence of a high profile. Was, yeah, and uh, she was basically worker. making. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight 
the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Sex work sound like a really fun lifestyle choice. And, um, you know, she was going on and on and, and Tony Jones was kind of giving her a lot of airtime. She's the in anchor. This, yeah, the anchor in this women's panel and it was me and Jermaine Greer and her and a couple of other people and her, her name's Belle de Jour and she's quite a well-known, um, she wrote a blog uh, anonymously about about her life as a sex worker and she's not a sex worker anymore but she's quite involved in that and she basically made it sound like this fun lifestyle choice, this empowering lifestyle choice mm-hmm. and I made the point that there are a lot of women who are sex workers who are not in it for the empowerment and the fun lifestyle um, and that it's not like little girls grow up wanting to be sex workers. Let's just not be too pretty woman about it all. Um, and it turned into this, what upsets me sometimes about social media is it turned into this ridiculous black and white thing where it became Mia Friedman hates sex workers and somehow the, all these sex workers started demanding that I apologise for not wanting my daughter to grow up to be a sex worker. And people started to say, oh, so, you know, if I, I imagine if your child tells you that they're gay, you'll disown them. And if they tell, tell you that they're a sex worker, you'll disown them. And that must mean that you're also homophobic. And you end up, it's again, boxing at shadows. You're defending yourself against the most outrageous, defamatory, extraordinary accusations. And it, it, yeah, I guess it's like asking someone, when did you stop beating your wife? It's like, but hang on, I reject the pretense of your question. Um, and that's what it was like. And but, still there are people who say I disrespect sex workers and I think sex workers are scum, But at which of course I don't. At what point are you able to know your truth? Are you able to go, I know my truth and therefore whatever people write about me, yes I don't really no. care? Yes no. Like I find I'm a Libra and Libras don't like injustice. And so when I feel that I've been deliberately misrepresented just for the purpose of people laying in the boot and getting outraged about something that isn't true, like the, the most recent example was a two weeks ago when I wrote about um, the fact that we need to be able to talk to our daughters about not the risks associated with getting wasted and that by getting wasted they increase their risk of all kinds of things including sexual assault, sexual abuse. And a whole lot of people deliberately or a a small minority of people on on social media who were very loud um, immediately co-opted that to say Mia Friedman thinks alcohol causes rape. And I'm victim blaming because I'm saying that if a girl drinks and she gets raped, it's her fault. Now, I never said that. You know, if you can't see the difference between cause and risk, then perhaps you need to go back and read what I said a hundred more times. And many people sort of didn't read the original thing, but they read someone else's tweet that said, Mia Friedman's blaming drunk girls Mm. for getting raped. And that pisses me off. I mean, I was able, I've learnt now that the only way to survive is to 
shut that down quite quickly by getting off Twitter for a while because, and, and I stopped reading my mentions on Twitter, which made me really sad because I used to love um, the way you could interact with people on Twitter. I used to really like that. But I decided at the end of last year that it's not normal or healthy to know what people are saying about you um, because mo- it's not healthy to know the good and it's not healthy to know the bad because you'll get attached to the good and you'll get gutted by the bad. And, you know, I can't stop people from having their opinions about me and disagreeing with me or whatever and I'm always interested in engaging in debate but it's not always civil and why should I allow someone – I mean, I was once, once – um, you know, tweets like Mia Friedman's the load her mother should have swallowed. I've had, you know, and why do I want to read that when I'm at home with my kids? Yeah. You know, how have I given, <laughs> yeah, how did that person get into my house? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the funnier ones. Like at least wow. that showed a little bit of inventiveness. But, uh, you know, the danger for me when you're in the public eye with social media is that, you know, it's not that I'm at work and I get a letter that got sent to me at work. It's like, they're in my house. I'm standing with my children and I'm reading that or I'm reading something abusive and foul and you can't pretend that it doesn't affect you. And mm-hmm. so I bring that te- toxicity into my house and I'm just not prepared to do that. I'm not prepared to give people that, that power. Why should I? Right. So, and that is the only way that you can sort of move forward. But with the, with the, the alcohol and the rape um, massive explosion, I knew it was bad when everybody that I know and love and a lot of people that I don't know started contacting me via email or DM saying, are you okay? Are you okay? And then I went, wow, must be pretty bad out there. <laughs> right, because you're not looking. No, I wasn't looking. And the only way you can take away the power of an abuser is to just mute them. Right. You know, there's a mute button on Twitter. It's called unfollow and it's called not looking at your mentions. Yeah. Um. You know, and that's that's what you've got to do to protect yourself because it can be massively unsettling and you can start thinking that that's the whole world. What are your thoughts about the people that write those things? Um, again, I think that they're pretty powerless. I think that they're very angry. I think that they're often not in, not interested in, in a debate. They're just, they just want to be angry and they don't want to hear anything that might be about shades of grey. They want to see the world in very black and white terms because they want to be righteous with their anger. Um, and, you know, you've got it to stay in the public eye and to stay doing what I do, you've got to steer, try find a way to steer a course through that. And I don't always do it. In fact, it's really hard. And I'm now at a point, you know, that I've talked to you about where I feel like everything I write or say is going to get twisted and blown up mm. and, um, you know bashed into the form of a stick that then is used to beat me about the head. Now, I don't mean to say, oh, I'm a victim and poor me and feel sorry for me, but it's more just as a writer when my job is to express myself. I'm trying to steer a course with how do I do that without being muted by the angry voices. Do we as a country, do you think, have an itchy trigger finger when it comes to outrage? I think parts of it do. I think that you have to be very careful and I was always a big champion of Twitter and there are parts of Twitter that I really like but it is also an echo chamber of outrage if you're not careful. Um, And it's different to Facebook. Facebook is a lot more civilised I think because people have pictures of their kids on their page and it's not that – there's not that anonymity that there is on Twitter. Mm. Um, People feel a lot braver um, on Twitter to just be abusive and quite vicious. 
I'm just, I guess, more like when in the in the world of, you know, because I think it's it can really, honestly, it can really stifle debate in this yeah. in this country. And that, mm. that Eddie Izzard has a line about Eddie Izzard, mm. one of my favorite stand-ups ever. He's going into politics in seven years from now. It's really? going to be oh yeah, it's going to be brilliant. The Star uh, Wars Cafe is still my oh, favorite. It's brilliant, but video. he talks about you know people will sit and watch. Um, you know, this person says X, Y, Z. And the guy over there says, well, I say ABC, X, Y, Z, ABC, X, Y, Z, ABC. And there's no, there's no debate. There's no like, well, I could see how X and A could probably work together. And yeah. How do you cut through True. that? You cut through that by going, well, A is going to make your children die. Or X Hitler. is going to take your job. <laughs> you know, that's how, you, that's how you, can, you can get people riled up and get them into action by, by throwing that fear and, and I don't know, sometimes I think that debate has in this country and also in the States quite a bit actually, mm. debate has been Dumbed down. Has disappeared because it's, I don't know, people click more on things that make them they do. upset or, or angry. I, um, I, I love politicians that change their mind. You know, it's always portrayed as such a weakness that, oh, such and such back down and they've changed their opinion. Flip-flopping, of course, flip-flopping. I think... That shows incredible strength and I think if, if a politician doesn't flip-flop, if you still think the same way about everything that you did 10 years ago or even two years ago, yeah. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a terrible thing. You know, I'm very open to changing my mind and learning more about something. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a, a sign of strength, not weakness. You, you talk on your site. Your site's mm. a lot about the conversation and yeah. that's, you know, that's a big part of, part of your site. And you just mentioned uh, before, and I've seen that you write that back when you're writing, oh, listen, about the SMO that happened the other day. Yeah, yeah. Here's, here it is. If you're interested in talking about this, I'll meet you. And 100%. We, can, uh, we can talk, not meet you personally, no, yeah. but meet you. We can, we can discuss. Oh, if you're yeah. interested in discussing, I'm happy to discuss. Um, how, how do people respond? Do people want to de- debate you? Do people want to talk to you? Or do they just go, I just want to be angry. Oh, some do. If I have to explain my anger, it's too hard. Exactly. So some people just want to say, you're a fucking stupid bitch. Um, you can't really have a discussion with those people. Uh, and sometimes it's really hard to stay calm in the face of that. And, and I took it and I took it, and I took it for over a week. And then I just went, you know what? I, I, I'm being deliberately misquoted, misrepresented, defamed. I don't have to take this. Mm-hmm. So I am going to push back and say, you're saying all these things. None of them are true. I'm happy to engage. You know, we, we publish comments at the end of every article. And they've, you know, what we say, Mamma Mia, is like a dinner party. Difference of opinion are welcome. But if you start throwing food and calling your hostess a fucking bitch, you'll be asked to leave. Um, because it's not very intelligent and it's not very helpful. And women don't feel safe around that. So one of the reasons that Mamma Mia um, is such a point of difference that there are a lot of stories in the news around politics, around refugees, around issues. If you go on the news site, the debates are very incredibly aggressive and vicious and quite foul. And, you know, on, on opinion, news opinion sites, um, they have to delete 30 40% of the comments. We have to delete about one or two because our community and our readers – self-regulate mm. and we've we very clearly lay out the rules of engagement yeah so do, do people do you engage with with people yeah, in the comments? Yeah, like if I often people do. who are ab- actively disagreeing with you i often do oh yeah we read all the comments you know we read all the comments on posts for sure yeah. um and we have thousands of comments a week so you know i can't read all of them but if if someone needs clarification on something 
absolutely, I'll come in and, and clarify it. Have um, you had your opinion changed by one of those discussions? Yes. I'm trying to think of an example, but but there are often things that someone that you, you will never have thought about it like that. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to change Mamma Mia from a personal blog to a women's website is that I have a very limited life experience, you know. I'm a white girl from the suburbs, um, you know, who, who's had a very middle-class background and that's my perspective. I don't know what it's like to be gay. I don't know what it's like to be a refugee. I don't know what it's like to um, be black. I don't. So that's why I like the idea of having lots and lots of voices in the authors of the posts and in the comments because I think that's how you learn. Um. So with all this and the, with the way, you know, can you think of an example? And like with the Yumi thing, it was quite clear mm. the way that it was her and Negus on set mm. when it went down and the way the two were treated so differently. Uh, do you feel that you would be treated differently if you were male? Yes, saying the things yes. You're saying? Because for women, you know, with the Cadell thing, right, and I know that it happened to Yumi as well. She also got death threats and she got death threats against her children as I did. Um, it was George Negus is a fucking idiot. Yumi is an Asian slut, dumb whore. And so when you're a woman, it becomes often it's sexual, often it's personally threatening. They'll bring in your appearance. Um, you know, I was called a Jewish, dumb Jewish. I mean, you know, the things I was called, um, they'll bring in your children. They'll, you've got more weak points, I think, Mm. as a woman. And, um, I know so many women who have walked away from Twitter or from social media because of that level of abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a different kind of abuse. It's, it's very gendered. And we saw that with Julia Gillard. You know, and people go, oh, but people were mean about John Howard's eyebrows. Yeah, but they didn't talk about his penis. They didn't, you know, Julia Gillard, they wrote about her big red box. You know, no one talked about John Howard's penis. This is the prime minister of our country. Correct. Um, yeah, right. So it's a different kind of abuse when it's a woman. Now, the, the, the pathway out of this mm. is education. That's the only pathway out of this, this mm. attitude, in my opinion. Mm. That's the only pathway of steering people out of this is education. So mm. where, like I asked you before, like mm. I grew up in one of four boys. Mm. I went to an all-boys school. All my mates are guys. I don't, I don't know the first – the first powerful woman I met was the, my first boss in radio when I was 20. But you more than pretty much any other man I know have such – you are so not that. Like when, if I read that on paper, I would expect to meet a different, very different person. But I had to learn all that very hard. How did you learn it? Oh, just from people looking at me going, um, can you see me after the meeting? <laughs> and they would see that I meant no malice. I just didn't know. You just didn't. I just. You didn't speak women. I didn't know. I didn't know how. Yeah. So for me at 20, moving into a workplace where suddenly I'm surrounded by wow. powerful women that aren't – like it was just the way I grew up. You said earlier, it's just the way I grew up. The first powerful woman I met yeah. that wasn't my mum was my boss and the woman that gave me my job. Mm, mm, mm. And I didn't know what to do about it because mm, mm. I'd just never seen this before. It was totally weird. I think that it's it's not something that necessarily comes naturally either. I know that when my husband and I separated for a couple of years, um, uh, just after we got married actually, um, 
and we both sort of did a lot of therapy individually, not, not together, just to fix what was wrong because we both knew that we'd both contributed to the, to the end of this marriage and we both didn't want to take the things that were wrong into our next mm. relationship or our next marriage. So we both did a lot of work on ourselves. And part of that for him was he's, he was reading those um, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus books. They're good books. They are amazing books. And he's like, why did nobody tell me this? Why is this not taught in schools? Yeah. This is like I think every man were, thinks that it's just him and it's just his partner that have this communication, you know, barrier or whatever it is. But in actual fact, so much of it is entrenched. And I think that, um, you know, they can't teach everything in schools. So, of course, can't necessarily be taught in schools. But this idea that relationships and men and women are just meant to naturally, organically understand each other, they're learned skills. And I think that in Australia we don't have nearly enough respect or understanding that communication in relationships and in life it takes work. Mm. You know? So, like, in the, in the world of... You know the the public, the way that people like yourself, yeah. and Yumi, and 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 uh, former Prime Minister Julia Gillard are treated. That's but that's that's the voice of a society. Like how 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 do we we change that attitude? What's what is it like? Is it starting primary um, schools? Is it I starting- think you know I think that um, earlier this year when we had all of that um, the misogyny stuff around Julia Gillard, our Prime Minister, and. And some of the awful things that were happening to her and there it seemed like there was incident after incident. And you could take it two ways. A lot of people were very sort of depressed by it because they were like, this is the state that we're in and women in our country, et cetera. I was really encouraged by it because every time something happened, we would have a public discussion about misogyny and even the word misogyny. Two years ago, do you think anyone, how many people would have known what misogyny was? Right. Or would have known or really understood what sexism was or would have even, it would have even been on the news that someone had done a a sexist menu about someone's private parts. And I think the fact that we understand that Someone, the leader of our country. Yeah, the leader. But anyone, (laughs) you know, but it it used to, would just be boys are boys and I'll come on, can't you take a joke? And for a long time, that's what women had to do. Come on, love, can't just take a joke. It's just a joke, which is a very powerfully silencing thing. And I still hear women saying, I was talking to a very high-profile woman in media just this week, and we were talking about something that had happened that was really sexist. And we said how, you know, we're talking about whether you say something about it or not. And then it's like, well, I just don't want to be that girl. I don't want to be the girl who who says sexist. There's still this massive stigma. Massive. You don't want to be that girl because look what happened to Julia Gillard. It became, oh, cry playing the gender card. It's like this idea of sticking up for yourself and demanding equality is playing the gender card. It's just bullshit. So anyway, back to your original question, I think that education is happening. I think that social, you know, standards are always adjusting. And I realised this not long ago when I was um, pulling up outside our local chicken shop with my eldest son who's 16 and... I saw this sleazy guy that I knew is a well-known guy around the area that I live in and um, very high-profile guy. And I said, oh, what a creep. And my son said, oh, why? Who's he? And I went, oh, you told him who he was. And I said, yeah, when I was a waitress, he used to pinch my bum. Um, he used to come into my restaurant and just pinch the ass of all the waitresses. And that was just what happened. And that was only 20 years ago. And the word sexual harassment, I don't think, you know, that's illegal, but we didn't know that then and yet we know it now. No one would pinch a waitress's bum now. I mean, 
that just would never happen. So things are changing and the more we talk about them, the faster they'll change, I think. So what do you tell the, the young women that work in your office about what it is to be a woman, like especially like the interns who are maybe only coming here for a short amount of time? What's the message you give them as you send them back out? Oh, they give me more messages than I give them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very much about um, – I'm just a bit of a, a mum now about protecting their reputation online, you uh-huh. know, in terms of the images that they post. Um, I had to have an intervention with a family friend recently because the images she was posting on her Facebook gave the impression that she was just always out getting trashed. And I know, in fact, that she's not. But that's how it looks and all of that stuff is ultimately going to be searchable and she's got hundreds and hundreds of friends and she wasn't – that was not doing her reputation any favours and it was a really interesting conversation and I've had conversations with guys before about it as well. You know, I met this young guy who's fantastic and has got a big career in in media but his Twitter avatar when I first met him was him sculling a beer and I was like, dude, I'm about to send a whole lot of radio people your way. Change your avatar. And he's like, oh, God, yeah, you know, right. I, never, I didn't think of that. Um, so if, if I have a message for them, it's that. It's, it's keep yourself nice online. Yeah, right. Gosh, isn't that a progressive message? But it is. It's like don't, it, yeah, don't, don't sell yourself short. I'm and so, that stuff counts. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think about it. I'm so lucky that. All of us. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so lucky of the things that happened in my life exactly. before, before Facebook. I agree. Exactly. And oh, you know God. what? I would have done all that and I would hope that there would have been someone oh. and I hope that there's someone that taps my son on the shoulder because I don't know what he posts because I'm blocked from his page. But if he does the same kind of thing, I make sure there are people in his life yeah. who are older and wiser who will tap him on the shoulder and say, dude, that's not very cool. So how do you explain then to – you've got two boys and one girl. Yeah. How do you explain to your daughter mm. – and what do you tell her about what it's going to be to grow up in this world? Yeah, well, she's just she, – she's as curious and, and as inquisitive as, as I always have been. So Because surely you must come home after, after one of those moments and she's like, well, did it happen again, mum? She doesn't understand so much about social media. Yeah. My, my, son, my son does. My, mm. my big thing at the moment um, – you know, there's only so much. I've had to talk to her about other things like breast cancer and 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 feminism and Julia Gillard and all of those kinds of things. That was great, and she got to meet Julia Gillard when when wow. the prime minister came in here, which was Whoa. something she'll always remember. And um, but my big thing in terms of life lessons is more with my teenager because he's you know I'm raising a daughter, but I'm also raising a man, mm-hmm. and he's 16 and. Um, you know, I've just written him this this letter, which I'm going to publish. It's an open letter to my son about porn, for example. And we have these great conversations in the car and I said to him, oh, I better get you to read the letter before I publish it. But um, it's about the things that I think he needs to know about porn. Yeah. Um, and how that's not what sex looks like and yeah. that's not what women want to do necessarily. Some of them might, but, you know, it's a little bit like the stuff you see in porn is an acquired taste. So just like, say, Brussels sprouts and brains are an acquired taste, but what if they were in every single cooking show that you saw, you would get the impression that everybody liked to eat brains and Brussels sprouts when, in fact, that's not true. And that's the same for things in, that you see in porn. And I think that as a mother and as a woman, I need to tell him that. Mm. Um, Have you seen Cindy Gallup's site, Make Love Yeah, Not Yeah, and I'll also send him there. Which is fantastic. She's amazing. Because I think that, that, that our, as, as mothers, creating men is in many ways 
just as hard or, or harder than, than creating women because we know more about women. We've been them. Um, and and we, we are their role models just in, instinct, in, intrinsically and instinctively. But with, with boys, I have to sort of say to Luca, life lesson, and he kind of rolls his eyes and I talk to him, you know, sometimes I choose my timing really badly like I was talking to him about um, during the American election I was talking to him about something about the Tea Party wanted to, what the Tea Party wanted to do with with abortion and and some of their just outrageous um, moves towards legislating against abortion. And I try I was trying to talk to him about this one day on the way to school and how you know don't just think abortion is a women's issue because if you get a woman pregnant by accident one day and you will probably it's your problem too and. This is why you need to make make sure that it's just like, Mum, I've got my French exam in half an hour. Can you please just choose your timing better? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yes, but you really need to listen to this. <laughs> but I guess, you know, I did make you uh, swerve away from there. I just wanted to know, like, what mm. what, what what do you tell your daughter about, yeah, about yeah, okay. growing up as a woman in this? Uh... I don't know. I just answer. She's very curious and I just answer all her questions. I never sort of say... This is, I mean, she wants to know things about how old are you when you have a baby. She's decided she wants to adopt because she thinks childbirth is too painful, uh-huh. Look, seems to be too painful because I've sort of given her the rundown on how that works and uh, she's a little bit concerned and wants to avoid the pain. So she's looking into adoption at the moment. She's seven years old. Yeah, right. And um, we've had conversations about breast cancer and yeah. we've had conversations about periods. So what do you hope... By the time she's 19 and she's doing work experience something somewhere, what, are the, what, are, what do you hope some things that she never has the to know? The most important thing, Osh, that I'm trying to teach her is that you are more than the way you look because everything else in society is telling her that she is just how she looks. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching her. It's, it's frightening because I'm watching her body be commoditized, even at this young age. Like I was took her um, to get shoes recently and, and the you know sweet person who was fitting her for school shoes said oh you know what's your favorite food and she goes oh chicken noodle soup and she goes oh soup is that why you're so skinny and I watched I I just wanted to scream but I just watched her face register this sort of confusion about soup does soup make me skinny and is skinny is that good or is that a bad thing and she was really trying to process all this information and I often feel like more than with my boys, I'm like a human shield in front of her trying to protect all these fucked up messages that are coming at her from advertising and the media and fucking bodies after babies with celebrities in bikinis holding their newborns and, you know, airbrushed images on magazines and all of those things. I, I feel that in Miley Cyrus, I feel that it's really, really, really hard to protect her from all of that. But I'm trying to just always teach her that her value is not in how she looks. So if I say to her, you are so beautiful and you're also smart and clever and kind, (laughs) kind, you know, because you just find yourself going, oh, you look so cute, but kind, yes, you are, and generous so that she sees that other values also have worth. That is awesome. That is awesome. All right. Um, there's two last things I want to get to you because I know you're a busy woman. Um, when, and it will happen again. It's yeah, part of what you of do. Yeah, it will. When, when the outrage comes, who mm. are the people that are there for you? Who are the people that come? Who has been the most unlikely people that have come out of the woodwork and gone, hey, I got your back? Um. 
really good point. I find I've got a very good network of women in the media around me um, who know what it's like when you go from sort of reporting a story to becoming a story. So I find that that, and there are men as well that I can reach out to and just go, "Oh my god, this is insane," and they'll know exactly how I feel. and And I know that if as long as I, as their if their opinion of me is okay. They're the opinions I care about. You know what I mean? So you, you kind of run it by, go, hey, am I nuts? Like are these yeah, people yeah, that you yeah, can go, yeah, yeah, exactly. did I? Did exactly, I? exactly, exactly. So uh, I'll just is go, it, Is yeah. it what they're saying? And, you know, you, you find that, there's, that those people, we all reach out to each other. And oh. there's a lot of them, you know, men and women in the public eye who will go, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know, hang in there, it's nuts. Um, and I make a point of doing reaching out to other people when I see the pack, the Twitter pack, turn on someone, um, and the abuse become absolutely vicious. I'll always reach out to them privately and go, hang in there, turn off your turn off your mentions, because you do feel it can be you feel very vulnerable and you can feel it can be really really upsetting. So, you know, I make sure that I'm good with my girlfriends, and you just need your girlfriends to go, oh, pack of idiots. Um, but those people think they're right. The people, yeah, are, they do. The people, oh, they believe gosh, they're doing yes. the right thing, yes, and they this do, is the. It's like Clive Palmer. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He does. He believes the the depth of his heart. He's doing the right thing. He does. And all I can do is like, well, okay. I think that it, it worries me this idea that nobody can say anything in public life without it being torn down. Like that, every opinion has to be. You know, for me to say, oh, little girls don't want to grow up to be sex workers, suddenly I have to justify that, that it's not okay to say that. Mm. Or I used, when I was on, on Q&A on that TV show, I used the word prostitute instead of sex worker because I didn't realise that sex workers do not like the word prostitutes. I, I didn't realise that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't intentionally disrespecting anyone. It was a great teaching moment. Mm. So use it as a teaching moment. Um, like I found when Delta sent out a tweet saying oh, this is funny, and, and one of the people was in blackface, for example. Uh, okay, yeah, so Delta is uh, she's one of the judges on the Australian version of The Voice. Yeah. Seal is also one of the judges of the Australian yes. version of The Voice, and she retweeted an Instagram yeah. photo of four people dressed as the judges from The Voice. Four white boys, one of them was dressed as Seal in blackface. Correct. One of them was dressed as drag, as Delta, one of them was yeah. dressed as Seal. And she just said the word, oh, um, have a great night, or oh, isn't that funny, or something like that. She retweeted it. And my point, and, and I, again, I sort of got tangled in this, but I got really, she got absolutely abused as being racist. Delta's a racist, Delta's a racist, and she had to deny that she was racist. Now, my point is, with blackface, use it as a teaching moment because there was no, I, I think that behind those things, if there's not an intention, I don't think it's the same as saying someone's racist. I'm, I, I think that you can explain, okay, this is what blackface is and this is, historical and this is why it's not that cool and okay great now we all know let's use it as a teaching moment i don't think it's helpful to scream at delta and say delta's a racist i I just don't think that's helpful firstly i don't think it's true and secondly i think that it's just turns everything so polarizing it doesn't advance at all no and so then i tried to write about that and then it became mia friedman's a racist and mia friedman thinks blackface is okay and 
so you end up with you can end up with just a very because everyone is too terrified to say anything because they'll get screamed down. You can end up with a very very beige um, public discourse that's policed by extremists, um, and I think that's a shame. Do you steal yourself before you hit yeah, publish? Yeah, I sometimes. Do you clench every sphincter and go? <laughs> send. <laughs> I fortunately I've got um, a very. I'm like a goldfish, so I just forget what it's like every time. And, and I think that, that I just keep going back for more because I'm stupid. So I'll just I – feel, if I feel passionately that I've got to say something, I find it very hard to shut my mouth, which is often massively to my detriment. But it's really important that you do. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I th- – I, And I really yeah, – and, and I see how much it troubles you. I see, and this is the thing, you know, you're not – Sitting here telling me, I'm going to say what I want and fuck them. No, you're, you're telling you're no. sitting here. Uh, I wrote it and then, oh god, I still believe it, but oh, really, I didn't mean it that. Oh shit. Because you know, you know, you know what it's like when you get to a certain level, and this is a weird thing because I consider myself a writer. I don't consider myself as anything but a writer. And sometimes, if I want to communicate something, I'm I'm sort of really struggling at the moment. My very first world problem um, that the. I don't want the story to be about me. So if I write something about the I Quit Sugar movement, that, something about it that troubles me or a criticism of it or, or make, make a point, I don't want it to turn Mia Friedman smacks down Sarah Wilson, which is something that happened recently. She's the, the colleague, former colleague of mine at, at New Magazines who's now started this I Quit Sugar movement. So sometimes it does feel very stifling because it becomes, everything becomes personal, mm-hmm. whereas sometimes I just want to make a point without without me becoming the story. So I, but as a writer, that's all you want to do. doesn't matter what you do now, mate. doesn't matter what you do now, my dear. That's, it's going to be Mia Friedman said this. Maybe I'll have to start writing under a pseudonym. And for then it's not as much fun. <laughs> but then you but don't sometimes get the you can get your point out more. Like sometimes I feel that I very much get in the way of what I'm trying to say. Uh-huh. That there are people out there who just hate everything I do and hate everything I say and that that gets in the way often of the message. But those people don't even need to read what you're writing. Because they've yeah yeah exactly they exactly. see you've said it and therefore disagree. So the with story it. just becomes those people being you know, and I don't say any of this in a victim way. I mean, I recognise I'm incredibly lucky to have this platform and have this audience and have be in this position to share what I think. I mean, my God, what a great position! But it's just something that um, I have to kind of work out myself as as a writer. I don't want to always write about the full on things. Sometimes I just want to write about the little little poignant moments in my life, and particularly around parenting. Um, so I think maybe I, I, I want to make sure that I don't lose touch with, with doing those kinds of things. And I think I'm going to write another book. I'm going to, cause I think the thing with writing online is that you can get very, it's very, um, like that sugar hit. You write fast, it goes hard. There's a lot of, you know, it gets kicked, the ball gets kicked around really hard. Um, and then it's over. And when I used to write a weekly newspaper column, I used to really love that process of mulling over it more. And, um, I think when you write a book as well, you put that paywall around the fact that people have got to pay money to actually read what you've written. So straight away you've got an audience who are interested in what you've got to say. But it means that not everything you say has to be so big because mm. I love talking about the little things. That's, that's my favourite thing in life is to talk about the little moments and the observations about human behaviour and my own behaviour, particularly around kids. Right. It's, it's interesting, you know, because... If just a cursory Google search on your name, no one, you know, just the idea that you're a mother of three. 
mm. started her own business with a husband, mm. <laughs> you mm. know, which is in itself, uh, I defy anyone to, you know, and stay married. You know, yeah, that's a big this deal. week, no, we are we are still married. No, it's good. It was hard working together at first, but we're we're good at it now. Well, it's a big deal. We found our place. But it's a big deal, and that, and like, I don't know. There's so much I want to talk to you about. We'll have to do that in episode two. Um, yeah. Final thing: Do I have you to when thank for making me um, Bachelor of the Year? Were you in charge of Cleo at the time, 2004? Um, I think I, I, I was in – I mean, you were one of the best bachelors of the year ever. <laughs> oh, you, were, you, you just ticked every box, you know, because <laughs> – I'm, I'm not asking. I remember one year that we did it and it was some indie guy from Custard won and he then – he was sort of voted the, the winner and then at the last minute he refused to do it because he thought it wasn't cool. Oh, yeah. Um, so – yeah, it's an interesting. It was pretty crowd fun. I had have. the big comedy. I had the big comedy check for quite time? a while. Yeah, I was terrified. The big comedy. What did you do with the big comedy it check? Did you ultimately the, chuck it out? The big comedy check sat in my um, storage unit for years, and then yeah, when I moved right. to America, I, I finally was, got rid of it. Uh, yeah, so at the self storage <laughs> place Kennards in Alexandria here in Sydney, um, it wouldn't fit in the wheelie bin. So it's like <laughs> as a giant big sports girl check for ten thousand dollars, <laughs> uh, which I donated, uh, uh, sticking out of the sticking out of the bin. I was terrified that night. I was so scared. Were you? Yeah, yeah. How I was, come? Absolutely. I struggle with anxiety. Yeah, I was right. Terrified. Oh, we haven't even talked about that. I struggle oh, with anxiety yeah. too, but not in those kind of contexts. There's heaps. It's, oh yeah. It's yeah. better now. I still struggle now, but it's not. How as do bad. you deal with it? Oh, not drinking helps. Yeah, right. Yeah. See, a lot of people say that drinking does help. Well, that's what got me into trouble. When I went through, you start to self-medicate. I think <laughs> yeah. that's how you can become. Unfortunately, ah. the dosage gets to a point where you're like, well, something's going to give. <laughs> I felt that I could have gone that way at one stage. Yeah, yeah. When I thought that the only thing could calm me was a glass of wine, except it was nine in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't drink anymore. Um, I ride my bicycle, which helps. Exercise uh, does help. Uh, yoga. Like, I was up at five with a <gasps> this morning. And, yeah. And so I just kind of lay there for half an hour. I'm like, I know what I have to do. I just have to get up and go to yoga. Yeah. So I went to yoga this morning and then um, uh, breathing helps. Um, just trying to sleep right, not too much coffee. And, um, you know, there's some, also there's some mm. brain stunts you can use, like some, you know, rationalization things that, you know, we were talking about in the other room before. Tapping helps sometimes. Oh, I've got to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, no, I won't learn about tapping. I ultimately had to, uh, yeah, I, I really, a lot of people suffer with it. And I think depression is the, I won't say it's the sexier mental illness, but, uh, you know, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but it's the one that people know more about, depression. Yeah, right. But anxiety is massively common. Yeah, so just so you know, like this is my day. Like like I said, I got up at five. I'm a bit jet-lagged, so that's also Mm. a part of it. But like until I sat in that room at one, Mm. I had the feeling that someone's hand was around my Mm. throat. I like get it in my stomach. It's a physical, like mm-hmm, I was I doing, I was doing Ujjayi breath, if you know what that is. In yeah, yoga. I do. It's very, this much. Way, very much. It's that, but I wasn't doing it deliberately. Like the, my throat was actually constricting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a physical reaction to an, a, a, a threat that is not there. Yes. And yes. My bo- it's, it's just a switch that's okay. stuck on in my mind. It's like leaving a light on in a room. Um, but you can't figure out how to turn it off. Like when you're in a hotel and you're really tired, you can't, try, can't figure out how to turn that one final light off. That's what it is. And I just have to keep reminding myself that it's okay, I'm safe, I'm here, I'm eating, everything's fine, I'm driving yeah. there, it's going to be okay and, blah, 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 yeah. and just try and let it pass and try and let it pass. Like even just talking about it, I can feel it come back a bit now but yeah. I know I'm okay. I get it in my I, – I feel like it's a, it's a hand in my st- – clenched fist in my stomach. Yeah, but it's – um, and I, I think it's really important to talk about because – Have you had it all your life? 
Do you think? Oh yeah, since I was a kid. Yeah, me too. Since I was, I remember having panic, panic. Once I knew what a panic attack was, mm. I remember having them at five, mm. four, five years old. Absolutely thinking the sky was. going So to yours is like attack, panic attacks. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, but it does. Mine's generalized. Well, yeah, that's that's the mine. Mm. Mine's that as well. Like that's what I had today. Mm. Mm. That's what I had today. Just generalizing. I'm completely safe. I'm completely safe. I'm I'm driving. I went to yoga. Yeah, but your body's I, acting as though you're being chased around the house by a knife wielding maniac. Precisely. Yeah. And or that I'm being choked. Today was a bit uncomfortable because I don't like it when the throat one comes. That's that's rare that that one happens. It's only every now and again that the throat one happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also it's just a case of being mindful and. Um, you know, being being present helps a lot. Um, I, um, I I talked before before mm-hmm. me and I chatted. I I spoke with her. I was interviewed by some of her staff, which was really fun in mm-hmm. their in their big room in there. And um, I talked about that. Uh, present is the key. Like, because mm-hmm. if if you're in if if you're in if only you're in the past, and if you're in what if you're in the future, mm-hmm. and present is the only place to to to, to be to find peace and you can find that in the space between two breaths and it's just kind of reminding myself that I've got that. And anxiety is living in the future and depression is living in the past. Precisely. Generally. Generally. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And one, they, they go hand in hand, unfortunately. I struggle with the present. I'm not, I'm really find it very difficult. Breathing? Do you just breathe? Just being in the present. Do I breathe? Do you breathe? No, not Breathing's really, really breathing's underrated. Yeah, breathing is Breathing is, breathing is yes. underrated. And the space between breaths is underrated. Yeah, I'm not good at being still. Well, never have been. Here's the thing it's a key of. Now, why am I successful at the things that mm. I've been successful at? Mm. I still think I'm a novice, but mm. evidently I'm not. I'm finding that I'm actually quite good at things. Mm. Um, because there is a part of me that has a compulsion to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep mm. doing it and keep doing it until it's right. Now, some of the things that I kept doing did not serve me. Um, things like, you know, mm. eating, eating mm. and, and, mm. and drinking and, and things like that. So I had to learn to let go of the things that didn't serve me and keep the things that, kept, that did. That, that did. So while I get quite a rush, mm. like I'm not, I'm not saying I'm carrying Homeland, but when I'm on a project <laughs> and when I'm writing or when I'm creating, mm. I'm carrying Homeland yeah. with the map on the wall. I think I'm we like, all are. I don't need to go to sleep. Yeah. I'm going to go and go and go and go and go and go because totally. I feel safe when yeah. I'm in this flow state and it's I feel nice. okay when I'm in this flow state and I, God damn, I do good work when I'm in this flow state. But when that Death Star laser yeah. hasn't got anything to focus on, exactly. it, turns, it turns inward. Exactly. And this is, this is the thing that I need to be present to is like, I'm glad I have that thing. I'm grateful that I have that ability to mm. focus so fully. But when I start focusing so fully on an imaginary outcome mm. or, or, or a thing from the past that maybe might have happened, mm. doesn't serve me at all. Distraction is also highly underrated. And what you say about focus is because you can't be anxious. My therapist taught me that you can't be anxious when you're really focused on something else. Mm. You can't. You, your brain can't do both things. That's why I started the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. That's why I'm doing exactly. another photo project. Exactly. Because I'm like, I just need something to do. You I have to, to have be that busy. Thing, yeah. Keep that thing going, um, which is really important. Um, and yeah, I think it's really, it, it's, I think it's really valuable to talk about it. And yeah, I, I agree. only started talking about it recently. Me too. Um, but yeah, it, it affects my life. And the feedback I've got has been really good. I'm not trying to, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to be the guy that says I know the answers. I don't know the answers. I'm just no. saying that. 
But I think the more of us that talk about it, you know, coming full circle to when you say, in terms of what's motivated me, this idea of making women feel better about themselves, being honest about your life. I mean, I think we live in a, we live in a society that values this whole glossy ex- exterior package. Um, and I think that that's not how you connect with people. You connect with people by being honest about your flaws and the ugly bits and the hard bits and the uncomfortable bits. That's how humans connect, not by going, aren't I awesome? Look at all the great things I've done. It's important to celebrate those, but I think that you do other people a much greater service and yourself a much greater service by talking about the other stuff as well. It's important. It is. (laughs) And on that... I want to thank you so much. I adore you. I know we tried a few times to make this happen. We did. And I'm really, really grateful. Oh, me too. What a lovely talk we've had and I've learnt things. Oh, really? Yeah. Unreal. Now, I'm I'm going to take your photo. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) All right. You're a gem. Thank you, my dear. Let's do that. I love you. Bye. So that's Mia Friedman. You can find her on Twitter at Mia, M-I-A, Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. You can also uh, check out her website, mamamia.com.au. If you are not from Australia, it could give you a very interesting idea as to, you know, the cultural temperature of, uh, of my country. I certainly enjoy looking at it to, uh, to kind of get an idea of what's going on while I'm away because I do miss Australia very much, even though I will be back there in just a few short weeks, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Thank you very much. If you uh, did tweet out about the show, thank you so much. Osherginsberg.com, if you could tweet out a link, that'd be great. Leave a comment on iTunes. And um, if you're on the website, you can subscribe to the mailing list there. I tend to write a thing every week. Um, It's a bit more uh, kind of a little more personal than the stuff that I get into here. So um, you you can find that there. I hope you have a fantastic week. I'm in Milwaukee right now. Uh, just so you know I've been here at a conference this weekend speaking at a conference which was really fun and um, it's an interesting part of the world let me tell you it's kind of interesting to be in a city that you've only seen fictionalized on American television and and it's actually real Uh, doing some really interesting things here it's a very interesting city and um, yeah it's kind of good but I'll be back in LA for a blink then I'm traveling a bit and then back to Australia to do uh, season two of The Bachelor which I'm really 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 excited about to come in and be back in Australia for a few months and um, be with my friends be my family hope you have a great week whatever you're doing hope it goes well for you I can't thank you enough for being here thank you for listening to the show thank you so much for all your tweets it makes my day Um, look after yourself this week sleep well dream of beautiful things my friends talk to you soon 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs> 